the National Archives podcast series, First Big Idea, Big Data and Dead Criminals, presented by Tim Hitchcock. This talk was recorded on 30th of September 2013 at the National Archives, Q. All I really want to do today is to give a very brief overview of a few of the projects I've been involved in over the last 15 years now, and which I hope illustrate what feels to me like a rather protracted journey from what might be thought of as the digitization of inherited materials. All that work we all do, so many people do, to simply make available what we knew we had 15 years ago towards what increasingly feels to me like issues of big data and new forms of analysis of a sort that actually we couldn't imagine very effectively all that time ago. My experience has been that with the right materials, it's becoming increasingly easy to apply ever more sophisticated statistical measures to the stuff of the dead. And if history and research is going anywhere over the next 20 years, one of the places it's going is towards, if you like, the analysis of large-scale bodies of digital materials to mine, to discover new patterns and new systems that were there all along, but were in many respects hidden by the very systems of finding, the very systems of taxonomy, the very systems of archival and library um, science that evolved over the preceding 250 <coughs> years. And the place I want to start is, well, a very boring place. It's with the Old Bailey Online, which and the reason I want to start there is because that's where I started. But more importantly, it also was just so old now. I mean, we started it. We designed it in 1998 and 1999. We designed it within six months of the first iteration of XML. And you know, while it took us getting on for a decade to complete and it wasn't completed until 2008. The underlying structure, the decisions that determined the kinds of source um, that it became, were made in the late 1990s. It, of course, includes 200,000 odd trials and 127 million words. And with London Lives, which we um, completed a few years later, and then along with London Lives, again, the structures, the use, the methodologies were essentially determined by decisions that we were making over 12, 13, 14 years ago. London Lives, of course, 240,000 pages of manuscript reflecting the um, administration of crime and poverty in 18th century London, giving access to about 3.35 million different names and name instances. And the point about these sites is that because we made all those decisions all those decades ago, makes me feel old. Um, they were, in fact, created uh, using a double-entry rekey method methodology, and they were created um, to be tagged within an inch of their life in XML. They are more heavily tagged than any other online resource I know. Both resources were double-entry rekeyed in India um, on, on a contract basis, and as far as we can tell, the Old Bailey is 99.9% .9 accurate while the London Live site gives well over a 95% accuracy rate for that transcription process, even, even from relatively quotidian, everyday 18th century manuscript. 
despite the fact that the original uh, microfilm and the original scan was, if anything, less good than the original print, I couldn't find any errors in that anyway, except for perhaps the verdict. <laughs> but what's important about this is actually not that accuracy, or rather that accuracy is important. But if you look at the tagging for just the first three lines of this, Mary Brown of St. Leonard Shoreditch was indicted for stealing four pewter plates, value four shillings, the goods of John Hellier, June 14. That's three lines. You can see where the original text is, it's black. Everything else are XML tags, which are essentially giving extra information about each line, each name, each crime, each object in that list. And that's just the first three lines. Every line subsequently, including all the verdict material, all the punishment material, all the rest of it, is tagged at the same kind of depth. And the whole point about that is, first of all, it was a shed lot of work. But secondly, what it means is that at the end of the day, as a result of all that kind of pre-OCR, pre-Gale, Cengage um, sort of methodology, what we had was a text that represented an accurate transcription of historical materials on the one side, and an abstracted statistical um, tool for understanding how that text might be represented in different ways, how that text actually relates to the underpinning bureaucratic um, process that was the criminal justice system. And that means that these things, there are things you can do with this material that is impossible to do with any kind of OCR. Everybody knows that things like the Bernie collection of 18th century newspapers has an OCR accuracy rate less than 50% for major primary words. Half of what you read, in, what you search for in the Bernie collection is just wrong. And the problem is not that that makes it unusable. All 18th century historians use it all the time. I use it all the time, and I rely on the rather inaccurate results to pull up more stuff than I actually want. The problem is that then when you start doing analysis, when you start saying, well, how common is this word? How common is that trend? Where does a topic modeling approach go from this paragraph that's badly transcribed to that paragraph which is equally badly transcribed? And what you find is that, of course, you can't do bugger all. It is absolutely impossible to take bad OCR and turn it into something that is easily or readily available for deep statistical analysis. Very rapidly, you know, the, the boundaries of statistical relevance just go all over the place. But because we have both structure, a structured representation of the trials in XML and an accurate transcription of the text, we can use both representations of these trials as part of a wider analysis. My favorite is to simply take language, words, descriptions, and turn them on their head in relation to things like the gender of a victim. Do we know that um, the experience of women in the 18th century is described in violent crime differently than the experience of, of men? Do we know, for example, that um, different things are stolen from women than men? And what does that then say about the history of material culture? But there's another aspect of these sites, which again is making them relatively easy to use and abuse. Partly, it's just that they're all built around APIs, application programming interfaces. They're designed to embed 
a series of essentially open access facilities that allow people to use them for mashups and reuse them and abuse them. I'm all in favor of the abuse of historical data. And what we have been keen to avoid is that trap of having created a single website for a single source. I mean, one of the big problems, the big issues there for particularly academics trying to create web resources is that they're driven by their own specific, rather obsessive concern with a particular source. And so they tend to structure things to answer the questions that they start off with. So in order to avoid that, we've um, attempted continuously to separate out the curated underlying text and data from the GUI, from the graphical user interface, the front end. And we tested all this out, created, if you like, the methodology for it in a further site that we finished a couple of years ago called Connected Histories, which is simply an attempt to create a federated search facility that sets up a new architecture for how individual, um, individual resources are interrelated or are searched cross-searched and accessed from a distance or in, in, in connection with one or the other. It currently has about um, 20 to 30 billion words of text and images structured from data drawn, drawn from data from drawn from about 22 different web, um, web resources and it's growing at a regular rate. But the important thing is if you look at the underlying architecture, the individual sources are brought together into a separate index, which again becomes accessible for reuse and abuse. It becomes essentially the um, underpinning basis for a series of analytical mashups, for taking, say, um, parliamentary papers and the Old Bailey and looking, for example, at the impact of a changing legal context for crime against the prosecution of crime and the other resource. And this is designed to facilitate just a few things. First, separate curated data. If we don't put the effort into actually making the original data right, then everything else is just going to be wrong. It also, however, allows us to refresh and reuse and recreate and constantly revise the front end of these things. There's nothing worse than a, than a website um, designed in 2004. It looks bad. It looks unusable. It looks rubbish. And unless we actually separate out these things, then the ability to revise and make, um, make good all that stuff just disappears. But the point is that all of that becomes just simply a starting point. This is essentially um, the landscape of data which me and Bob Shoemaker and a few other people have created over that, that period of time. And we got up to about 2011. And it all looked pretty fun. And we've now finished um, the book that's based on it. But it didn't actually address even the beginnings of what amounts to big data. It doesn't address different ways of forming analysis. And so what we did from that, and what I did from that, is actually get involved in a series of much more technical projects that are about different forms of analysis. Their existence, uh, the existence of these things may speed up scholarship and may inform the selection of evidence. There's lots of people suddenly working on um, 18th century crime. But it doesn't change the character of that scholarship in any substantive way. In some respects, in terms of the simple number of terabytes involved, it's beginning to get towards big data. But actually, in terms of more philosophical issues around big data, that idea that 
the, the material is so large that you need a different alternative approach in order to even begin to use it had up until a few years ago for me not really happened. As far as I'm concerned, it's not big data if it isn't forcing and encouraging you to do the scholarship differently. Now what I want to do now is let me move on to a slight uh, a report, if you like, on the a series of ongoing projects that attempt to use this material, take advantage of that accurate transcription to take that next step move on towards what I actually do think is big data in this, in this context. Really, it's just a report of some of the work that's caught my eye and just made me think, wow, that's cool. And more parochially, a report about what I did last summer when I should have been preparing for teaching. And the first is this one. This is not mine. This is um, a site created by Magnus Huber at Giessen. And what he's essentially done is take all that Old Bailey material and tagged it for speech parts. So, where somebody says, he said, she said, they said, I said, everything after that becomes a corpus of recorded spoken speech. He then adds to our own XML things like class, occupational um, tagging, and allows you to suddenly say, well, okay, let's pull out everything that's said. We don't really want printed words. We don't really want text in that sense of what some printer, editor, and um, publisher it, what we really want is some kind of close analysis of what was said in court and what it meant to the people listening. And Magnus Huber's site is beginning to allow that kind of process to happen. And it allows you to take a word and contextualize it. It allows you to put um, all the words on either side. It allows you to see what context a specific document, a specific phrase, is appearing and then in turn tie it to the social class and social background and occupational background as well as the location of the person speaking. And that strikes me as kind of cool. Then we also, in a, in a separate project, working with a guy named Bill Turkel at the University of Western Ontario, we decided, okay, well, what can we do with 127 million words of trial reports? And what we ended up with is something really stupid. We ended up counting them. Basically, we decided, okay, we're going to count how many words there are in each trial. And that is a scatter chart of all the trials, all 127 million trials. Um, and then we said, okay, well, how does this change what we view? And the point about it was that what, we, what it allowed us to do is essentially stand back from a body of material that you could never read, that quite frankly, you could, if it fell on you, you would die. It's big. It's too large to actually encompass effectively. And it allowed, but at the, other, at the same time, doing this allowed us to stand back and say, well, what does it look like as a whole? And what it ended up showing us was, first of all, that in the 18th century, there were all sorts of weird things going on in terms of the censorship of the trial reports associated with um, the process of publication and local government politics. And in the 19th century, a story that nobody in the historiography has really told looked wildly different. All the red bits are guilty, and suddenly what we have from about there is a whole bunch of trials that are literally 30 and 40 words long that suddenly end up in a guilty verdict. What it allowed us to do is to stand back and say, what's going on here? And identify something absolutely distinctive. Um, and where we ended up with is the realization that in the trials themselves, 
in their word length in a very simple measure. You actually had evidence for the fundamental transformation in the nature and character of the um, English criminal trial as a result of the rise of plea bargaining and the bureaucratic creation, if you like, of the metropolitan police and professional policing. Suddenly in the 19th century, unlike the 18th century, what you have is a professional cadre of lawyers and policemen taking people through the trial process and essentially doing plea bargaining so that the trial outcome is being determined not in open court by a jury, but actually in a back room prior to the trial actually taking place. If you really want to know the story of the um, English criminal trial, it is about the bifurcation of the process between an adversarial trial up there in the top and plea bargaining at the bottom. And that came about by counting a bunch of words. We also decided, well, okay, we tagged all this stuff up to the nth degree. How else? We, we, we've done it as text. We've said, okay, well, now it's, it's, it's speech. We, now, we know it's um, who, who everybody was, what gender they were, where they grew up. You know, we, we know what they said. We know what the verdict was. We know what their crime was. Um, and the next thing was say, well, where does it all take place? And so what we then did was essentially attempt to geo-reference all this stuff. So we took the 40,000 place names in the, old, in the Old Bailey, and we took a whole series of, other, of nine other structured data sets as well. And then we took John Roke's 1746 map of London, and we warped it, we geo-referenced, we, um, we rasterized it um, so that you could then polygonize it into 30,000 different polygons representing each of the streets, alleys, courts, and byways of mid-18th century London. And what that allowed us to do is something that seemed kind of weird, well, kind of fun to me, actually. That is where every mention of a, of a um, gelding, mare, or horse is in, well, basically 80 million words of trial records. What it allows you to suddenly do is start thinking about text not simply as a single thing, a text, but as having a different kind of relationship to other sorts of measures which are more or less about real-world measures. One of the things about warping a, a map is that suddenly you get the feeling that you're actually touching something real. It's very odd. Maps have that effect. They actually map onto the real world. And of course, as a historian, I don't believe in the real world, which made it, made it really difficult. But you can also do things like that. I have no idea what that means. Not a clue. But what it's done is basically take all the major color words, divide them up between what I think of as industrial colors, like blue, yellow, um, yellow and red, and map them against all the, if like, natural colors of brown, green. And what you end up with is a map of 18th century London that is a color map. That if you think about walking through the landscape of the 18th century city, and thinking about, well, why should well, the West End and the East End be dominated by natural colors, whereas the city is dominated by, um, by, indus by industrial ones? And of course, you could say, well, that's pretty obvious. That's, that's, that's normal. On the other hand, it was not something I'd ever thought of doing before. And it was simply the fact that we suddenly had this resource that um, brought, it, brought it forward. Once you have that, that body of text, even after you go past all the geography, there are also a whole series of just really easy, low-hanging fruit analysis. This is a site called Voyant Tool Tools out of um, Alberta, set up by a guy named Stefan Sinclair, who's now at McGill, I think. 
But basically what it allows you to do is simply take any digital text, upload it, and apply the kind of classic forms of analysis associated with corpus linguistics. Frequency analysis, um, distribution of words across the length of a text, um, context analysis, and if you, if you must have one, a wordle. So this, this is simply um, you know, a analysis of a single trial, but you could equally pull out all the trials for a particular offense. You could pull out all the trials of people sharing particular characteristics, bung it into forms like, like um, Voyant tools, and end up with a different way into that. And the point about it is that it's easy to do, the sort of thing you can get an undergraduate to do without any problem. And it changes that process of engagement with the text in ways that strike me as really rather powerful. Um, everybody, anybody use Zotero? Zotero is fantastic. Basically, it's a plugin for Firefox, for the browser. And um, what it allows you to do is essentially curate your own library online um, and also download um, PDFs of articles and that sort of thing. And this is then a plugin for the plugin. It, um, Zotero also allows you to do, for, do things like, for example, um, there's a plugin in Word, which means that um, if you're creating a reference or a footnote, you simply click on, on the, the, the plugin, it'll bring up your Zotero library and automatically generate the footnote you want. Which, from my perspective, is, is kind of sad because I, I'm, I like the obsessive uh, pedantry of, of writing footnotes. But it is also much faster. But the point is that something like this allows you, again, to curate an online um, body of material and to essentially apply new forms of analysis to it. And if you think about what scholars have always done, they're always going to do it, still do it, which is sit down and read an archive, read a body of sources. But this also points to, in different ways, different ways of actually getting there. And what I'm keenest on most at the moment is an idea coming out of computer science called a macroscope. And in a sense, both Voyant tools and paper machines and Zotero and, if you like, the counting words methodology associated with the work Bill Tertel and I did are all steps towards building a macroscope for historical analysis. And this comes out of work by a woman named Katie Berner um, at Indiana. And the idea really is to create a structure that allows you to stand back and say, here we have you know, a billion words. Here we have 87 different resources, all with different structures. What does it look like when you're on top of the building? And what does it look like when you zoom down to a single point, a single sentence, a single word, a single byte or bit? And that process of being able to do both, to look at a collection in its entirety at the same time as you look at a word or a phrase, strikes me as one of the if like futures of scholarship, one of the forms of me and methodologies that is going to change how we both write history and how we research it. And I just think it, it, it's wonderful. That's essentially where we got to um, over the last few years. And in the last year, um, I've been working on in a, in a different direction. And that really is to take alternative forms of semantic analysis and applying them again to the Old Bailey. And this is work with a guy named Simon DiDio at the Santa Fe Institute in, um, in New Mexico and um, Sarah Klingenstein. The idea really is to take Roger's thesaurus. And everybody uses Roger's thesaurus, but very few people actually understand it, which is really odd. 
And certainly most historians have no clue. I keep on, I, I, I'm wary of saying this in a room of archivists, but most historians don't realize that what Roger does is actually divide all of, all of language into 10, ten you know, largely, um, large semantic categories and you know, a thousand smaller and precise categories. So all we did was we essentially Rogerized, I don't know if that's a verb, um, Rogerized um, uh, 100 million odd word, uh, words of trial accounts in order to apply a Roger-like number to each and every one of those. And that allows us to then say, take a phrase or take a trial and say, well, where does it fit? Does, for example, um, words associated with violence go into particular kinds of trials? Do words associated with affection go somewhere else? And where we've ended up with is a graph like that. That basically reflects the extent to which the language associated with violence is becoming more directly associated with crimes of violence. In other words, in the 1790s, you can find violence everywhere. Every theft, every um, coining case, every bit of fraud, somebody hits somebody, and it gets described in court. By the 1880s, 1900, almost all the language of violence in the 19th century trial record are associated with crimes of assault, murder, rape, that kind of thing. Actually, not rape because they censor that. And what it reflects is the changing character of how trials are conceived and prosecuted and thought about. It's a measure of the change in the character of crime and criminality. And I think as a way of evidencing that, it actually gets rather powerful. We're also, in a side project, looking at the relationship between, again, if like XML tagging on the one hand and, and um, text on the other. What information? Well, if we know the words in a trial, how well do they actually predict? Can we predict what the outcome is going to be? And the answer is, oddly, in the 18th century, you can pretty well judge on the basis of statistical measures of what words are in a trial, whether or not the, the, the verdict will be guilty or not guilty. And that that fundamentally changes in the 19th century, that our record of the trial is somehow changed, that the nature of that system is somehow changing. And again, we don't know what's happening here, but what that process of standing back and applying new measures to large bodies of texts have done is allow us to ask different questions in different ways and come up with confusing answers, which as an academic I think is probably a, a result. The other project that we're um, doing is simply saying, well, what else is encoded in those trials? And one of the things is actually in the first paragraph. Basically, there are lists, lists of what was stolen. And 90% of all 18th century trials are for theft. And so what, we, what we've done is extracted that first paragraph, which was tagged up as a, an indictment and therefore is easily extracted from the rest of the text, and essentially created a statistical analysis of every word and every object in what is, what are we up to? I think it's 80,000 objects um, for the last part of the um, 18th century. What I think of it is, as being is essentially 18th century London as seen through a thief's eyes. And the important thing about that is that if you actually look at the narrative we have of Western economic history, it's based almost entirely on the history of probate, on the history of inventories, and all those inventories essentially dry up in the, in the 1730s and 40s. 
And the next big source we have are sales catalogs, which really pick up in the 1800s and 1810s and 20s. And as a result, what we have is a nice bit in between where suddenly, for the first time, because we can extract stuff and deal with it on a massive scale, we actually have an inventory for the intervening period. And we have an inventory of a sort that, if anything, is likely is, is more analyzable than the probate stuff ever, uh, ever could be, or the um, kind of inventories of privilege rep represented by um, sale catalogs could ever be. They are dividable by the occupation, the gender, and later the age of the person who owned the objects involved. So suddenly what we have is a different model, the possibility of creating a different model that allows us in turn to rethink and rechange a broad story of Western and more particularly British economic history. And that gets to where we are now. Those are all kind of in the middle of being written, written up. And this is the project that Val mentioned that the TNA is involved in. And um, basically, it's working with Barry Godfrey, Bob Shoemaker, Deborah Oxley, and Hamish Maxwell Stewart with the support of the National Archives and, in the first instance, the participation of Nick Barrett. And we're um, really just taking everybody we can find who was ever transported from London to um, New South Wales and Tasmania, and everybody who went through the prison system in 19th century London, and we're putting them all together. And we're creating 66,000 um, essentially biographical units, tying together, I think, 30 different um, record series in total, so that we can start to trace. Everybody who was born in St. Giles in 1760 was tried for a crime in 1784, was transported in 1787, and died somewhere in um, Tasmania in 1854. And we can not only know that story, we also have their tattoos. We have their body mass index. We know that if you're 18 and are transported or indeed put in prison, the likelihood is that you're going to grow two inches because the food was so much better in prison and um, as a transportee. We also know that women actually put on more weight in prison than men did because women actually had a less good diet in the home than, um, than men did because within the household, we can now tell that actually they are, if you like, maldistributing food and calories towards particular members of the household on, a base, on the basis of gender. And we can trace all that. And the last person transported from London to, um, to Australia died in 1923. So this project essentially allows us to start putting together large-scale, well, in this instance, largely global bodies of material that allow us, again, to think hard about those big issues around the narrative of economic history, of social experience, of gender, of class, of all that goes with it. And all I really want to say by way of conclusion is that my part of that project is, uh, is actually, I think, quite fun. What I, what I get to do is create a three-dimensional soundscape of the Old Bailey courtroom and then put together, put into that soundscape all the voices of all those people who eventually end up being transported and imprisoned as a way of essentially assessing what it's like to speak to power and what it's like to listen to power as it's speaking to you. And that's what I'm going to spend the next um, year or two on. And that, that seemed to me like a lot of fun. But we won't know what, um, that, what comes out of that 
until another four years or so. So invite me back then and we'll talk about that. And the point of it all is that these kinds of analysis, this reuse of material digitized over a decade ago, is possible only because of how they were done in the first place. And as big data becomes every day, the sorts of things the users of the National Archives are going to want to do will begin to look, it seems to me, I kind of hope, more and more like this. I want to end, however, with Tim Sherratt's real face of White Australia Project. Probably one you all know, but um, I find it incredibly powerful. And I find it, and I want to end with it for no other reason than because it is beautiful, it is powerful, it is moving, and it's focused absolutely on the individual experience of people caught up in the huge bureaucracies of governance and management, which archives like the National Archives are there to preserve and make accessible. And if history, however digital, however big, doesn't have the characteristics of this kind of work, the individual, moving, empathetic, powerful voices of people caught up in a broader historical process, then I'm not very interested. Thanks. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyrighted to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>